you, Matthew. Okay, Acts, Acts chapter 19, I'd like to first read first, verses 6 and 7. Actually, we're going to read verses 6 through 12, and then we're going to go back to Acts 2, and I'll let you know when. But let's get moving here. Scripture always prevails. We'll start with Scripture. Acts chapter 19, verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs of aprons, or I'm sorry, unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Do you see the progression of here of the power of the Holy Spirit that comes down on Paul and what the possibilities are here? These aren't even possibilities. These are absolute truths that you can believe with your heart that people were literally coming to Paul and he was given the power to heal them. This happened. I, feel, I find this utterly fascinating and I'm reading and I'm like, what, what, what must this have looked like? You have to put it in this context. When you go here, here Paul's back in Ephesus. He's there for no less than two years. Some theologians say he was there for three years. He's teaching, he's debating, he's giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Twelve disciples come up. We're going to look at what happened here to them in a minute. And all of this is happening in the midst of one person. Look at the work that the Lord did through Paul. There he is working with these disciples. There he is going into the synagogue. Always goes into a new town. And the first thing he did, and this was a blessing, this was a grace that the Lord would continue on with the Jews and continue all throughout Scripture... To reach to the Jews, Paul would start right in the synagogues and he'd give the gospel of Jesus Christ and show them Christ is the Messiah and he is God. So he goes into this one place, this one area, it's, a, it's like a school, it's an institute that was founded by one named Tyrannus and he goes in, there's a lot of debating. As he goes in and, and debates, he also, he, he continues there. The word is going all around Asia. He's preaching the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden here we see special miracles given into the hands of Paul by the Holy Spirit. We saw Peter preaching at Pentecost, okay, with the apostles and many Jews from all the areas. We see this brings a remembrance in this study and how Paul... He is conferring the Holy Spirit or infusing the Holy Spirit upon these disciples by the power of Christ from heaven. You see the connection here? What we're learning here is what we were talking about on Wednesday night several weeks ago. Pastor Evans and Miss Evans were here. He, he has brought together, and I believe this came from a statement that he made regarding his work at the jail, where he has a lot of hardened criminals that he teaches. And basically he said they're... There's so many that question about Christianity, and they say that it's not natural. He says, no, Christianity is not natural. It's supernatural. And when we're dealing with these things, we are dealing with, if you want to put it in, in, if you want to put it in kind of modern terms, like Dr. R.C. Sproul used to put it all the time, 
cosmic war out there. There's a cosmic war, a heavenly war. Right now, as we're sitting in here and we are worshiping, if we are worshiping and we're reading the Bible, we're worshiping in spirit and in truth, we are quorum Deo. Right now, we are before the face of God. And, there are, and there's the heavenly host. The heavenlies can see us, although we can't see them. And Paul reifies this by the work that he's doing. I, I just, this, this really, I mean, just one verse, you can spend so much time on it. We see here how Paul is guided by the Holy Spirit. And he makes a definitive move which requires an action. This is to be conferred upon the disciples with an unmistakable work of the Holy Spirit to magnify and to convert these men from what they were believing. As you study further, if you go down the line and you see it first, what were, they, what were these disciples believing first that they were confused about? Remember what we've been talking about? Anyone? This is kind of what this is all about. You should know this. They were questioning the baptism of John. They were thinking that it was of John the Baptist. They hadn't made the connection that what John the Baptist was doing was from Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul's doing. This is what our job is as Christians. We are supposed to be taking the crossover of all of the confusion out there about religiosity, religions and different creeds and faiths and all, and we are supposed to be showing and teaching and understanding Scripture and making it clear who Jesus Christ is. And that's what he's doing here. And so here we see a crossover from these 12 disciples only believing their religion went as far as knowing the baptism of John. Paul comes in and says, wait a minute. Even John himself said, I must decrease and Christ must increase. So they had not had the Holy Spirit conferred upon them yet. This is where it happens. And so what we see here in verse 6 is what happens. Paul, here's some actions that go on here that we need to look at. The Holy Ghost came upon them. What's the first thing Paul does in, in verse 6? Anyone? I'm sorry? That comes, that comes at the end. What's the very first thing? Lays on hands on them. Where have you heard about that in Scripture before? Have you ever heard about laying on the hands? I think that's very important to understand this action. This was a godly action. It was a dominion mandate that goes all through Scripture, the laying on of hands. But the laying on of hands can only be to those that, that are obedient to the Lord. It has to be an obedience to the Lord and a following. The prophets had that power. The apostles had that power. All right, I just said something I think very profound. Practically speaking, what can we say about that? The apostles are like the prophets of the New Testament. The prophets of old, that's how we can connect the Old Testament and the New Testament by the work of the prophets of old and the work of the apostles in the New Testament. Look at the power that they had. They had prophetic power. They could look into the future. Christ would direct them and tell them exactly what was going to happen. So far we've seen here Paul leave Corinth and still not a hair on his head has been touched. Christ said it. We go back to Acts chapter 18, verses 10 and 11. He said, you do not hold back. I am with you. And you know what Paul knew? See, Paul was such the Christian that he could say to himself, I believe in my Savior, and I know that even though he says now that it's going to be okay, that it might not be okay after this in a certain point. And even if it's not okay, if you have Christ Jesus in your heart, 
You have the Holy Spirit walking side by side with you and He's in your heart. No matter how bad things get, you'll get through them and He will be there with you no matter what. Look at the laying on of the hands. Paul lays hands upon them and then we see what happens. They speak, they prophesy the word of the Lord, but first the Holy Ghost descends upon them, perhaps even as a dove, as we saw in John 1, where the Holy Ghost descended upon our Lord. Look at this. You know what I find fascinating about these 12 men? 12 people. That's, almost, that's like the size of a jury almost. 12 people, the Holy Spirit is conferred upon them. I never saw one time as I read this. I read it, read it, read it, read it. One time that they did anything to defy what was happening here. They didn't question it. They didn't ask if it was real. They didn't sit there and go to have some intervention and go to some Christian psychologist to find out if this is something that really that they should consider. Immediately when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, they started to prophesy and speak in tongues. Immediately. There was no debating about it. Lisa. Right. Well, to direct you to your question, which is a very profound question that's very important, because the outset of what's going on here is these very physical works that these disciples are doing, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and speaking to them by the outward works that they are able to do, being conferred upon, thus proving that of a truth there's no doubt about it. The powers that they were given, which were given many times, and we go back to Pentecost, we need to look at that, proves the presence of the Holy Spirit. It proves it. It's unmistakable proof that everything Christ said right down the line is perfect. And yes, and it's another thing about this new critical race theory here, this is a great thing to disprove that because there was absolutely no differentiation between races, creeds, or anything of these disciples and others, many others, that got saved. It didn't matter whether they were red and yellow, black or white, they were all precious in Christ's sight in every single one. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip. Philip ran to that carriage and he gave that man a wonderful, blessed uh, rendition of Isaiah 53, went in there and, and, and told him exactly what it meant and that man loved it. And this is what we see here. Whether they're Jew, whether they're Gentile, whether they're Greek or Roman, no matter what, many of them came to Christ. And this is what's happening this was an incredible revival going on. Lisa. Right. 
Right. Sure. Right. Well, if you dig deep, Christ was saying to them, the sign is here. You don't believe me. I'm the Messiah. You're looking at the sign right here. And they were seeing him perform miracles. They saw him heal hands, grow legs back, heal lepers. And he said, you've already seen the sign. And he's saying, you're so blind, what else do you want me to tell you? It's like the rich man, the rich man in, uh, in hell. Luke 16, please tell my sons about this. They won't listen to Moses. They won't listen to my word. That's it. And, and, and that, that's a very, very good point. But we see here, let's look on the laying on the hands of what this means. Paul conferred these extraordinary gifts of the Holy Ghost upon these disciples. He had solemnly prayed to God to give them those gifts. And the Lord granted this request. And we see here it displayed here in these verses. And if we get back to the Old Testament, this is a gesture that also has been used by the patriarchs, especially in conveying the great trust of the promise that the Lord gives us. Look at the laying on hands when we see in Genesis chapter 48, verses 10. Genesis chapter 48, verses 10 through 15. I'd like to ask maybe, um, let's see, Jacob, could you look that up? Genesis chapter 48, verses 10 through 15. And the laying on of hands, we see the blessing that Jacob gives, he's about to die. He thought for most of his life he would never see his son Joseph ever again. And he lived in absolute abject agony. And here Joseph appears not long before Jacob dies. They have a few years left together. And look at what he conveys. Well, look at what we, what we can see about this. Go ahead, Jacob. Thank you. Do you see what he did there? What, is, what, what, what can we learn? And this is how we learn Scripture, I believe, another way. What can we learn about the action? And what was the result? The action was he laid his hands upon Ephraim, Manasseh, and Joseph. What was, the, what was the result? Now remember, before I give the answer, this is an extension of the covenant that was made with Abraham about many nations. As the sands of the seas, the stars of the sky, we see how now Jacob is now passing the baton. He's getting ready to die. And when today, this is, not, this is kind of a little rabbit trail, but today where most, a lot of people you hear, if you see television or if you hear people's words, when they're getting ready to die, a lot of them say, well, I lived a good life. I've been a good person and I live a good life. It's been a great life. What I love with Jacob's last words, well, actually, they were not his last words. He was 120 years old when he said this to Pharaoh. And he died at 150, and he said, few and evil were my days. <laughs> That's what his summation of his walk on the earth was, few and evil. 
And, he, and, and he's talking from a worldly sense how horrible this world is. He's ready to go. He's fighting to get into heaven. Paul says, I press towards the mark of the high calling. We can see this here. Jacob is fighting to get into the heaven. And he's passing the baton, giving the covenant over, laying on in the hands, and look who receives the blessing. The patriarchal blessing here, Manassas and Ephraim, they have nations named after them. You notice if you look on the map of the nations of Israel, you don't see Joseph's name. No, he got a greater blessing. His two sons got it. What could be better for a father than the sons get that passed to him? Look at Judah, how he receives the blessing. He becomes the actual of the line of Jesus Christ himself with the scepter. And here Jacob is the one dealing all of this out. And I believe he laid his hands on them all. Whenever they were to receive a blessing, that was a laying on the hands. It's a blessing. And so here basically what's happening with Paul, he's laying his hands on these disciples. That's a blessing. Acts 8, if we go to Acts chapter 8, verse 18, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, and, he, and basically it says he offered them money. Remember that? That man at the gate, they offered him money and he wouldn't take it. That was Simon. Remember Simon the sorcerer? He wanted money. He said, I want the power to lay on hands. I want to be able to have this power. Peter was furious at that. That wasn't good. Lisi. Right. It was. Right. I, I mean, that reminds me of communion, how serious that is, and what, a, what an incredible Christian sacrament that is for the Christian church. We need to be very careful with that. Laying on the hands was very serious. Lisey. Sure. Right. Right. That's very important. Brother Jerry. Amen. Right, right. Amen. Oh. Right. Right. 
Amen. That has become a marketing tool, sadly. And that's very important because when we see this happening in Scripture, what Lisi just said about wondering, not wondering, but asking what they really believe. Look at the 12 disciples. Look what came out of them. Paul could see a hunger from them. They loved the Christian faith and they wanted to expound their knowledge. And they may not... None of us ever peak as Christians, but none of them are any task theologians before they even get to that point. Paul already lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes through them, and they immediately are speaking in tongues, and they're given the gift of prophecy. And basically, it goes along with what Brother Jerry says. When it comes to the laying on of hands, this speaking in tongues thing is extremely sensitive and it's extremely important for us to understand what it really means because out and about today, it can mean anything. I've seen these speaking in tongue service when these people stand up on chairs and they start babbling in gibberish and you have no idea what they're talking about. And Paul says, how can you hear these babblers? How can you understand what they're saying? These are very good comments. They're very, very good to, to reify what we're learning here. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Brother Jim, could you look that up? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. And Brother uh, Jerry Gavin over here, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And we're looking at the laying on the hands, and, and we're looking at that physical act of, of this divine mandate. Lisa. Right. 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 Right? Right? Where did this happen before? Uh, Consider the characters that are here. Exactly. Jacob. Esau was supposed to get the blessing. Jacob's the one, and although it was kind of a little rascally way that he attained it, once again, this this could go off on a long rabbit trail, but I'm not going to do that. 
But you know, I always thought that, uh, I always thought that Rebecca, I always thought, I'm going to say this real quick because that goes from the younger here with Jacob that gives the blessing. That's of the Lord. Jacob's the younger that receives the blessing. But I think I understand why Rebecca wanted Jacob, that she had it in her heart to have that blessing. Remember, she told Esau to stay away from the Hittites, and he married a Hittite woman, and Rebecca was furious. And she did not want that birthright to go to a pagan nation. And it wound up, Jacob gets it. I, you know, we see how it went, happened was not very, <laughs> very honorable the way it happened, how Jacob kind of hoodwinked Isaac with Rebecca's direction. But she in no way wanted Esau to get that patriarchal blessing because he was with pagan women. And the Lord said not to do that. And so with that, we can bring all of this together and say this is all the direction of the Lord. And we could go on and on and on about that. A couple more verses we need to read. Brother Jim, if you read. 14, thank you. Oh, I just saw a big word there. The word presbytery, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Look at that. It's given to the presbytery. This is laying on, isn't this incredible here? It says, with the laying on the hands of the presbytery. That's the elders coming together, praying hard. As Brother Jerry said, this is a serious notion. It's a very serious act that the Lord gives. It's not something to be taken with, trifled with it. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Amen. Thank you, Brother Jerry. Look at that. This can only happen if God will permit it. And what we see here of repentance from dead works. That is very serious. That if these administrations are carried out from those with dead works that have no repentance and are doing it of their own, of their own works, this is a very serious condemnation. It's not something to take lightly. I pity these people. I pity, I pity those that are in, in these churches where all of these sacraments and all of these works that are administered by a priest or a pope or somebody that is trying to say that they have the power of conversion, this defies all of this, which comes from God. It has to be of the Lord. And it's not just in those churches. There's many evangelical churches that have this today, which we've talked about many times. But we see here that the laying on of the hands it was a blessing from God, and it was for blessings, and it was for healing. Paul receives the ability to confer the Holy Spirit upon these disciples by the power of Christ through the laying on of hands. And look, and we can see that these, these precious final moments we just saw of Jacob and, and how it's incorporated there. But then we consider the undeniable promise in the book of Isaiah regarding the promise God made for those who He blesses with salvation, those that thirst for Him. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessings upon thine offspring. This is how important it is for us to take the Lord seriously. If we have a thirst for his knowledge, a thirst for knowledge and a thirst for his word, he says, I'll bless you, I will bless your children, I'll bless your children's children, I will bless you all the way down the line to fourth, fifth generations. 
you don't believe in me and you reject me, I will curse everything you have. I will curse your children. I will curse your children's children down to the fourth generation. Never seen it fail. I will curse you. So we look at both sides of it, the wheel and the woe, and I believe that it's a good thing for us to honor the Lord for many reasons. What could be more, more profound than because he says to? Look at the Holy Spirit through Peter. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. I'll tell you what, I'll give somebody who gets there first a blessing, if, if you want to call it that. Acts chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 12. What meaneth this? Thank you, Matthew. Peter encourages that now these different nations and regions can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, released from the bondage of sin by repentance, and these followers of Christ knew could not be justified by the law of Moses, rewritten and reinterpreted by the Pharisees, but by the blood of Christ where there is remission of sin. You see this happening back here? They're speaking in tongues. And what, we, what can we learn from that? Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, we read, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Romans 3, 25, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith and blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. This is where this comes from. The power of the Holy Spirit comes down. Peter administers this just as Paul does these 12 disciples by the power of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ. By the power of Christ. Not through man's personal intimations, which we see. Brother Jerry's talking about how, how, this, how this is taken very, very lightly, and we see it out and about. Benny Hinn, well, what about, remember, Peter Popoff? Remember him? And he would take some poor, two or three of these mutant-type people, stick them in the audience, 
They'd have microphones in their ears. All right, all right, well, we need to have, we, we need to have a, uh, like a, a, an epileptic seizure in row three. And all of a sudden, somebody starts having some crazy things happening. He stands there. He got caught doing it, by the way. Funny thing is, after he caught, he kept doing it, and people were still listening to him. That's how they're led astray. We had people like that, and Kenneth Copeland, and many of these, many of these people that might mean well, but they have these faith healing services. They're not being endowed by the Holy Spirit. They, 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 they profess to be, and they say that if you're not healed, well, then your faith is not that great. Well, I'm here to tell you that if they're not doing this by the power of Jesus Christ, which they're not, that's very serious. That, that's very serious. We see here in verse 6 and 7, when the Holy Spirit signified these disciples' inclusion into the church, this fully came down upon them with no reservation and no hesitation whatsoever, just like here the Jews at Pentecost. They spoke in tongues, devout men, proselytes from far lands, dignitaries, converts to Judaism to attend the feast, even those that referred to themselves as the brethren of Christ, but forsook Him. Some of these people here that had the, had the tongues given to them where they were speaking, and all these different, the, the apostles were speaking in these different dialects and these perfect idioms to all of these different regions. Some of these people may have been the very ones that were there at the crucifixion. Y'all crucify Him. I mean, this hadn't happened that long after that. This could have been. And look at what happens here. They came from Parthia, or ancient Iran. They adopted old Iranian beliefs and religions and were largely adapted to Greek culture, arts, architecture, new religion, and philosophies. Look at that. This is all the way back at Pentecost. Same thing's happening here in the regions where Paul is. We saw them at Mars Hill. They were having all these Greek philosophies and all these different religions. Then there are the Medes, the ancient Iranian culture, so they spoke Median language, and there's not much known about the language today, but we, we, it makes it fascinating how the dialect was perfect for each one. Some of these dialects and languages have been long since gone, and we don't know a whole lot about them, but we know this. When the apostles were endowed, we can learn from this. They were sent to be able to speak to them, and all you have to do is remember, this is a complete turnaround 180 degrees from the Tower of Babel. Because we remember back in Genesis, in the Tower of Babel, the Lord confounded the languages because they were defying Him. They were trying to find another way to heaven without God, and so He confounded them by not allowing them to be able to correspond back and forth. That'd be kind of tough in the middle of a building project, wouldn't it? You're standing there trying to build this great big edifice, and somebody's on like the 15th floor and calls down, says to throw up a hammer or something, and you can't understand him now, speaking in a whole different language. And so this, this is a complete turnaround from that. We see Elam, modern-day Iran, spoke an ancient Iranian language. Mesopotamia, largely modern-day Iraq and northern Saudi Arabia, inhabited 3,000 years prior to Jesus, coming by Assyrians and Babylonians, later overtaken by the Greek Empire. Actually, it wasn't that long, but it was. if you go all the way back, it can go as far as 3,000 years. Cappadocia, original terminology from the trilingual inscriptions found by Xerxes and Darius that this town was part of the Persian Empire. The original name, it was Kata Peda, meaning low-lying land, which would mean it was the home of the Hittites. This was where, remember, Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite. 
They spoke what is known as Luvian, or Luvian language. Luvian meaning low-lying. It was an Indo-European or present-day Iranian, somewhat European culture. It is referred to as the land of beautiful horses. All these different cultures. See, Arabia, kings of Arabia brought gold and silver. They brought them to Solomon for the temple. In Galatians, Paul traveled to Arabia on his journey before returning back to Syria and going to Damascus, the city which at one point he was going to plunder. This is present-day Saudi Arabia, the home of the Muslim cult with the two largest mosques in Mecca and Medina. And the great speculation over centuries is where this could be where Mount Sinai was. And many thought it could be the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, but it actually was not. It is an agar of Arabia. Galatians chapter 5.24, we read, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is bondage with their children. Just giving a little history here. Look at all the different nations that came in. The speaking of tongues, these cloven tongues, were made to reach and to witness and to be understood. They were not Babel. <clears throat> they were all amazed at the language from the disciples, these apostles of Christ. Why? See, the Galileans, they spoke Aramaic with Hebrew, referred to the Sea of Galilee as Kinneret in Hebrew from Numbers 34, which means harp or shape of a harp. Hebrew shepherds were despised by Egypt. Present-day Jews despised Galileans, and they knew no more than their mother tongue. Despicable men to most from whose, whose they, they, they learned... They had different understandings, and they could not understand. As the Jews sat back and they heard this, a lot of them hated it. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And I think that it's incredible with these disciples who have the Holy Spirit conferred upon them. You go back to Pentecost... Did you see any of them have to go through all these years of training and education, confirmations, and all these rituals to get to this point? When the Lord was ready, He did it. He did it. Look at Peter. Peter never had a theological degree in any of the big big universities. I'm not saying that's bad, but I am saying when the Lord worked with Peter, look at the work that he could do when the Lord was ready. There are many out there that believe that they can't even begin to witness or confer any, any part of the Bible unless they have many, many years of all this education. That's not so. Lisa. Right. Right. Never been changed, didn't have qualifications by the world standards of here's, you know, he wasn't born with some sort of heritage or for, you know, it was, this was God's choosing. So, you know, we can, we can see that all throughout scripture, just like you're saying. 
right? What was the manifestation of David's heart? All the things that he was supposed to be able to do in order to be able to fight Goliath. Saul said, you need the armor. One of his brothers mocked him and laughed at him. What was the one thing that was in David's heart that the Lord used to direct that stone right between the eyes of Goliath and knock that giant down to the ground? What was it? Does anybody remember? There was one major thing. I'll give you a clue. It's something David hated. Lisa. That's it. His heart was with the Lord. He didn't care if he didn't care if this day I would die. Don't threaten me with heaven. He hated that blasphemy. And Goliath, we can't imagine what he was saying because he was really ripping the Lord and blaspheming him hard. And when David saw that, that's what it should do to us. We should eschew evil. We should feel the same way when we hear others blaspheming the name of the Lord. And David went after him with all the boldness and the Lord directed the Lord. David knew that the Lord would direct him. That's a very, very good point. Xenoglossy. This was perfect xenoglossy. X-E-N-O-G-L-O-S-S-Y. An understandable language that one can speak or write, which one cannot attain by natural means. Some call this paranormal. <laughs> the multitude heard these languages spoken in the perfect vernacular and knew that Galileans only spoke a certain language, not considered to be very educated. Those that were actually the ones speaking these languages were not even considered. Peter wasn't considered any task theologian with some great big degree. Peter, James, John, the sons of thunder, they weren't considered any, any real big academician. And so here the Pharisees are sitting back wondering what's going on. Well, what was the reaction of the multitude to the noise abroad? Every man heard them. Those that didn't know the Lord, all they could come back and say, they sound like a bunch of drunkards that have just downed a bunch of wine. That's what they attested it to. They didn't even, couldn't even see the work of the Holy Spirit, how important this was. See the reaction of the multitude. The Parthians heard them speak in ancient Iranian language, Medes and the Median lingo. Those from Crete heard it in Greek. Those in Cappadocia heard it in Luvian and so on. They heard it in their tongues and they could understand it. This was not some ritual. One thing I also wanted to talk about before we finish, and we're just about done here, is I wanted to bring in, I think it's important to bring all this together to see these 12 disciples in Acts 19 have the Holy Spirit come down on them through the laying on of hands of Paul. They have the same reaction. They have the same, they have the same connection to what happens at Pentecost where this is completely of the Lord. But we talked about the three C's of the work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about... Conviction, conversion, and now we see by all of this, for the Christian church is comfort. That's the third C, is comfort of the Holy Spirit. This manifest presence of the Holy Spirit is a great consolation. And these are graces from our Lord Jesus Christ of the Spirit given to all believers which are extremely earnest gifts. Here we see the comfort in our walk with Christ after Christ calls us to Himself and converts us. This is of the Lord, and it's of His direction. It's of His choosing, and it's of His perfect providence. It's of Him. It's not something that we, in our sinful nature as dead people, would go after at any time on our own. 
We see here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Consolation, comfort. This is ultimately what this is all about. It's for our encouragement, our direction, and the Lord comforts us even in the most unfathomable hard times in our life. How do you get through it without the direction of the Holy Spirit? How do you get through it without Christ? How do you do that? Brother Jerry. Amen. Right. Right. But the distinction is that some are those who have been made to feast and those who have not been made to feast. So this it's kind of evident with this language here because notice there are some people comment that all were amazed and perplexed. Those are the groupings that had their eyes and their ears open. They could understand what was going on. And then the others said, Well we're gonna pass this off and they're just right. They're just drunk. They're just drunkards, right? Right. Amen. Great point. And isn't that an amazing reaction to what people think about Christians? They think we're crazy. They <laughs> think drunks. We're Jesus freaks. Funny mentalists. You know, there's all kind of names. Now it's more, it's not as, uh, probably not as soft anymore. Now we're just basically flat out uh, homophobic terrorists. <laughs> you know, so... At this point, here we see the working of the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to take it another step further next week. We see Paul in the house in the school of Tyrannus. He has the debates, and all of a sudden people are throwing their handkerchiefs at him, and all of a sudden that he's be able to heal. I think that's, that's going to be an incredible study. So let's finish this morning. I ask uh, Brother Jerry, can you close us this morning? Thank you.